Good morning, church family. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians. Book of Colossians, and if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find the book on page 983. We've concluded our series on the book of Proverbs. Now it's my joy to begin this new series from the New Testament Scriptures. And I'd like to begin by offering a word of prayer, and then we will... Uh, go through this book together. I should note that since this is the first sermon in the new series, my sermon will basically just be an overview of the book. Okay, This will set us up for all of the weeks to come. Let's pray together now. Lord, I do thank you for this wonderful book of the Bible, or the book of Colossians. So important for us today, Lord, the the experiences of the believers in Colossae, so similar to our own. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be receptive to the message of this book, help us to take its lessons to heart. Lord, help me as I try to communicate the the, uh, overall teachings of this book. I pray that it would be clear, easy to understand, and easy to receive. Lord, be glorified in this time together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple of years ago, I was on my phone scrolling through my news feed when suddenly I saw this picture of the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, and it looked like the cathedral was burning to the ground. My first reaction was, this cannot be. This cathedral has stood for a thousand years. It has gone through wars. It has gone through natural disasters, and it has always stood. How can it be now burning to the ground? But as I read through the story and then looked for more stories, it was obvious that that's what was happening. The Notre Dame Cathedral was burning. Many Christian commentators at the time couldn't help but see an allegory in that fire. See, that cathedral was built by a civilization united under a common core of biblical truths. And that cathedral was a monument to those truths. So Notre Dame had a spire that went 300 feet into the sky. People would have to crane their necks up to see the point. And it was a reminder to all people that there was a God above them who ruled over all things. Then at the base of that spire, there were statues of the 12 apostles. This was a reminder that the God of heaven has spoken to us. He spoke through those apostles and that we were under their words. And then every Sunday, worshipers would go inside the cathedral. They would immediately be struck by the size and the grandeur of that worship space. It was a reminder that they were very, very small compared to God. And that God had been very gracious to condescend and meet with them there. And every Sunday, they would hear the words of God. And they would celebrate the Lord's Supper, which was the ultimate act of God's grace. Notre Dame was not the only cathedral in Europe at the time. There were hundreds and hundreds of these cathedrals. And then there were thousands and thousands of local churches spread all over the landscape. 
But of course, that civilization is long gone. That one burned to the ground, so to speak, and it was replaced by modernity. And then in time, modernity also burned to the ground, and it was replaced by post-modernity. And this is the world that we are living in today. This is a postmodern world. And in a postmodern world, there is no single cultural consensus. Instead, our world is a cacophony of competing interests. Ours is a world of cultural Marxists and sexual revolutionaries and white nationalists and Antifa terrorists and critical theorists and a thousand other groups who are all competing for the supremacy in our society. And some of them are very persuasive in their arguments. Others are very militant in their methods. Increasingly, I find myself talking to just good, godly Christians who are deeply unsettled by all of these competing interests. Christians hear the very plausible arguments of some of these other systems of thought, and they think to themselves, have I misunderstood the gospel of Christ? Do I need to reinterpret it to accommodate this new system of thought? They think, can I supplement my Christian faith with some of these other philosophies? Sometimes I talk to Christians who have loved ones that have bought into a toxic ideology. And now these people have come back to the Christian and they've said, look, here's where I am now. This This is where I stand. You have to come with me or I will disown you. And Christians find themselves in this very painful situation where where they have competing interests. They want to be faithful to God. They also want to maintain their bonds with their loved ones. And so they're wrestling through this, thinking, okay, maybe I have misunderstood the Scriptures. Maybe I could reinterpret it and then uh, find some rapport with my loved one. Or maybe I could adopt some of these systems of thought, kind of create a, a hybrid between Uh, teachings of Christ and teachings of this ideology and therefore accommodate the world around me. These are the kinds of things that Christians today are going through. And friends, this is exactly what the book of Colossians was written to help us work through. And it helps us by means of a case study. In other words, the book of Colossians was actually written as a letter to a single local church. And it was a local church facing circumstances not all that different from our own. And as we look at this case study, we see the the situation the church was confronted with and the lessons that are given to that church, then we'd have our paradigm for how we can deal with our pluralistic culture today. Now, if you look at verse 2 of the first chapter, you see who these original recipients were. It says, to the saints and faithful brothers of Christ at Colossae. So this book is written to a local church in the ancient city of Colossae. In fact, that's where the, the name Colossians comes from. Now, Colossae was a city of about twenty-five to 30,000 people at its height. Could have been a little less than that at the time of the writing of this letter. And Colossae was part of the old Roman Empire, a a very pluralistic empire. There were 
um, people groups of, of every type, every conceivable language, culture, uh, religion, philosophy was present in the Roman Empire, and it was also present here in the city of Colossae. Colossae was a melting pot. Many different pagan religions were being practiced there at the time. Um, there was also a Jewish presence, and then there was this one local church. This church had been started by a man named Epaphras. He'd come to faith in Christ in Ephesus. That was a city not too far from Colossae. After coming to faith in Christ, he then returned to his hometown of Colossae, began sharing the gospel of Christ with the residents of his hometown. And some people believed his message. They gathered together and they formed this local church. Epaphras was the pastor and they went, made up the congregation. But life was not easy for this little church. They were in a pluralistic environment, and they had representatives of every conceivable religion and ideology pressing in upon them. There were people coming directly to the leadership of this church and to members of the congregation, too, saying, look, if you want to embrace Christ, that's your business, that's okay, but you also need to know that it's wholly inadequate, you need to supplement what you've got now with our system of thought. And the lifestyle that you have learned from Christ, that's great, but it's also inadequate. You need to adopt some new lifestyles, too. And so this church found itself as like a sheep among wolves. All of these people around them telling them that Christ and his teachings were not enough. They needed to reinterpret what they had received or supplement what they had received, modify what they had received, whatever it took in order to accommodate themselves to all of the other systems of thought around them. We get a glimpse of what this church was dealing with throughout the book. Look, for example, at Colossians chapter 2, verse 4. The author says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Okay, So first, there was an intellectual challenge. People presenting themselves to the church in Colossae with arguments for why they should adapt their Christian faith to a new system of thought. And the arguments were very plausible, meaning they, they, they had the, the ring of wisdom to them. Then you look at chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. So there were philosophies, there were belief systems, there were human-based traditions that, that were being advocated to this Colossian church. And again, they, they seemed to have a, a ring of wisdom to them. That's why the church was tempted to embrace them. Then look down at chapter 2, verse 16. It says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. So there were advocates of new lifestyles and new worship practices, right? You guys need to modify your diet. Stop eating certain foods. Stop drinking certain beverages. And you need to expand your worship calendar, right? Add new festivals, feast days, Sabbaths, things like this. Worshiping the Lord on Sunday was wholly inadequate, they were saying. Also look at chapter 2, verse 18, first part of the verse. 
It says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. So there were people coming to them demanding a life of self-denial, right? Certain foods, certain lifestyles were, were taboo, which, according to the gospel of Christ, were fine. They were being encouraged to deny themselves those things. And then to add to the worship of God, the worship of his angels. You can see here that the church of Colossae was facing pressures on all sides. Intellectual challenges in the form of competing philosophies and plausible arguments. There were challenges to their lifestyle um, with advocates of asceticism, adjustments to their food and drink. There were religious challenges with advocates saying, look, you need to multiply feast days and Sabbaths and you need to add worship of angels to your practice. It was coming from all sides. And there was an aura of authority around the advocates of these competing systems too. Look back at Colossians 2 verse 16. That verse begins with the following. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. So you see, the advocates of these new beliefs and practices were coming to the church from a position of intellectual and moral superiority. They were saying, we know what is true and right and good. We know what is best. We know you guys in, in, in the church here lack it. You need to adopt what we're telling you or else we'll look down on you as intellectually inferior people or as morally inferior, right? You're either ignorant or you're deplorable. There is this aura of authority uh, among the advocates of these systems. Then you also look at chapter 2, verse 18, the second part of the verse. It says the, the advocates of these competing worship practices were going on in detail about visions. So, hey, you guys, you need festivals, you need Sabbaths, you need feast days, you need to start worshiping angels. And if they were asked, well, where did you come up with all of that? They would say, oh, I got it directly from God. They claimed visions. See, there was an, an aura of authority about them. We have a special relationship with God that you lack. We've heard directly from him that these are the things that are pleasing to him. So you must submit to the visions we have received. Add these things to your Christian worship. You know, this is what was causing the Christians in Colossae to feel such pressure to adapt the faith they had received. You know, if a bum on the street comes up to you and says, hey, I've got some things that will make your life better, you're probably not going to be tempted to listen to what they say. But, you know, if a person comes to you and they, they've got a terminal degree or they've got a lab coat on or they hold a high office in society and they come to you and they say, listen, there are some, some systems of thought and practice that you've not adopted that you really need to. If you don't, you're either ignorant or foolish. Well, that is a temptation, isn't it? Because now an authority figure is making these claims. Church of Colossae was, was under great distress because they had embraced Christ, which is to say they had embraced his person, his, his work, and they had embraced his teachings. 
Christ approved the Old Testament, he taught directly in the Gospels, and then he commissioned 12 apostles to fill out his teachings in the rest of the New Testament. That's what they were clinging to. But they were being told, no, you're misinterpreting God, you're misunderstanding him, or what you have is inadequate for faith and life. And their arguments were plausible, They seemed to have the ring of wisdom. They were coming from authority figures. And they were appealing to our natural human desire to fit in with the people around us, to be accepted as smart and as as wise and as moral. So therein lied their dilemma. So this is what the book of Colossians is for. It's for people who are living in a pluralistic society. They are feeling the pressures on all sides from that society, and they don't know what to do. Should they adapt? Should they stay firm on what they have received and that alone? That's what it's for. But now, who wrote the book of Colossians? Who's going to be our guide as we work through the issues. Well, friends, we have here the best possible guide to work through the issues. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Here's where the author introduces himself. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Here is the author of our book. Here's the man who's going to guide us through the morass of all of these competing systems of thought and belief. It's none other than Paul. The Apostle Paul had been born and raised in the city of Tarsus, which means he had the best education that was available in his day. Paul could quote from the Hebrew scriptures and from the pagan poets with equal ease. He was that well-educated. He had been raised in a cosmopolitan center. So he understood how difficult it is when when you're in a pluralistic environment. And for a long stretch of his life, Paul was convinced that the Christian faith was dead wrong. In fact, in early adulthood, Paul, uh, Paul's career involved going city to city trying to stamp out the early Christian movement. In fact, that's where Paul was going on the day that he was converted. He was on a road to the city of Damascus where he was going to hunt down the Christians there and bring them up for trial and possible execution While Paul was on the road to Damascus, he was confronted with none other than the risen Christ himself. And Christ spoke to Paul. And in that moment, he was converted. He was now a Christian. And the risen Christ uh, gave Paul a special calling. He called him to be an apostle. 
I spoke about the, the apostles a few moments ago. This was the, the elite group of 12 men that Christ handpicked to lay the foundation for the New Testament church and to flesh out all of the teachings that Christ wanted the church to possess, but which he did not personally deliver. Paul was called to be an apostle of Christ And he was called specifically to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He's the apostle who would bring God's truth to all of those different philosophers and religious practitioners out there in the non-Jewish world. Paul was the ideal candidate to write the book of Colossians. Here is a book designed to help believers living in a pluralistic society to know how to navigate the complexities of it all. And it's written by a man who knew backwards and forwards that kind of an environment. And he was a man specially called by the risen Christ to explain the will of Christ to his people. Then you'll notice there in verse 1 that Paul was being assisted by Timothy. He's called our brother. That means Timothy was a fellow Christian. Scriptures tell us a little bit about Timothy. We know he was a young man. He was already a believer when the Apostle Paul met him. But then after their meeting, Timothy began to accompany Paul on his missionary journeys. Finally, Timothy was installed as the pastor of the church of Ephesus, which was not too far from Colossae. At the time the book of Colossians was written, the Apostle Paul was in jail. He was imprisoned because he was preaching the gospel. And so apparently here, Timothy was the one helping Paul in prison. Timothy was probably the one bringing the, the pen and the paper, and maybe Paul was even dictating as, as Timothy wrote the contents of the letter. So it comes to us from Paul, but with the assistance of his young protege, Timothy. My friends, Colossians is a book for people like us. It's a book that was written by the best possible guide for navigating through the issues we face. And what are the main lessons this book teaches us? Well, there are three in number. Here they are. Friends, when you find yourself in this intellectual and spiritual crisis and you don't know what to do with the advocates of of systems of thought that seem opposed to Christ, and you don't know what to do about it, here's what you should do. Lesson number one, you remember that Christ is preeminent. Remember that Christ is preeminent. That means his person, his works, and his doctrines surpass all others. It's not even a contest. Christ is supreme. Look what Paul says about Christ in chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, one of the most remarkable passages in all of our Bible. Here is Christ. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. Amazing. The unseen God of heaven has made himself visible to us through the man, Jesus Christ. Eternal Son of God, now come in human flesh. There is no one who can claim such an identity. 
And then it goes on. He is the firstborn of all creation. That's a figure of speech that means he is the, the highest of all of creation. He is above it as the ruler of all. Verse 16, why is he above all? Because by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So here in Christ, the invisible God has been made visible. And through this same Christ, God created the universe. He was the instrument God used to bring all of this into existence. And Christ is also the instrument that God employs to hold the physical universe together. All of its laws and the rules that govern them held together through the supernatural power of Christ. And all things exist through him. They all exist for him. And then it goes on. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. So not only is he Lord of creation, he's also Lord of redemption. He is the source of our redemption. He is the king of his church reigning from heaven. This is who Christ is. And then chapter 2, verse 9 In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So everything that God is, Christ is too. He is co-eternal with God. He is co-equal with God. Every attribute of God is found within the person of Christ. And then chapter 2, verse 10 He is the head of all rule and authority. So he is God come in human flesh, Lord of creation, Lord of the church. In him is indwelt all of the attributes of deity. And he is also king of kings and Lord of lords. And so what does that mean for you when you have advocates of competing systems of thought coming to you saying, you know, Christ is great, but you need to supplement his teachings with mine. You need to embrace new ways of thinking. The only proper response is to say, and who are you? A mere man or woman who has spun some theories inside of your own head and now wants Christ, Lord of heaven, to submit to them? Christ submits to no one. He is preeminent. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two is remember that Christ is also all-sufficient. That means everything we need for life and godliness has already been given to us by Christ. Colossians 1.22 says that by him we have been reconciled to God. Chapter 2, verse 3 says that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Chapter 3, verses 5 through 15 say that through him we have the power to kill the remaining sin in our lives and to cultivate those new godly virtues. In chapter 3, verses 18 through 25, it says through him we have the power to cultivate strong marriages 
and healthy families and to become good co-workers and good bosses. Chapter 4, verse 5 says that because of him, we have all the resources we need to navigate the complexities of life. See, the, the words of Christ, whether the words approved by him in the Old Testament scriptures, taught directly by him in the Gospels, or sanctioned by him through the teachings of his apostles, all the words of Christ taken together have everything we need to be reconciled to God and to live with wisdom in this world. Everything we need is there in Christ. So when you are tempted to subsume Christ in whole or in part to the ideologies of mere men, you remember these things. He is preeminent. He is all-sufficient. What could anybody have to say to, to enhance what I already have? Then the third lesson related to what we've said. Friends, recognize the folly of subordinating Christ to the will of mere men. You know what happens when you modify the clear teachings of Scripture with the teachings of the cultural Marxists or the sexual revolutionaries or the critical theorists or any of the other competing worldviews? You know what happens? You don't make the Christian faith better. You just make the Christian faith worse. You don't improve your life. You hurt your own life. It's kind of like adding a few cyanide crystals to your glass of drinking water. Now, some people say that those crystals smell like almonds. I mean, superficially then, seem kind of pleasant. But you, you plunk those into your glass of ice water, guzzle it down. What's going to happen? You're going to forfeit your own life. Well, Christ has given us a pure glass of water to drink. And in the drinking of it, we are fully satisfied and we are made strong and healthy. If you take the, the, the thinking of godless men and women and you try to bring them in, to import them into the content of the Christian faith, requiring reinterpretation or removal of portions of what Christ has given us. It's like plunking those cyanide crystals right in the drinking water. You're not making the water more pure. You're not going to make yourself better off. Friends, we don't need anything but Christ for life and godliness. And when we're struggling in our Christian lives, whether intellectually or morally, it's not because Christ is inadequate. It's because our commitment to him is inadequate. Which is why Paul says in chapter 1, verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. See, when we heard that you guys in Colossae are being confronted with all of these competing ideologies, what we're praying for is not that you would figure out which ones are good and which ones are bad to adopt. No, we pray that you would come to a fuller understanding of Christ that all of the riches of the wisdom of Christ would become yours 
so that none of this would even be a temptation to you anymore. And then in chapter 1, verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. I pray that God would would fill you to the fullest with his knowledge, and I pray that God would give you his strength so that you can endure your adversaries, so that you can outlast them in your intellectual and moral commitments. And in chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. That's what you guys need right now. Don't worry about what they're advocating. You just commit yourself to Christ. You've got all you need for life and godliness. So just walk in accordance with what He's given you. That's all you need to do. And then chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he goes on his list. What we need is to kill remaining sin in our lives so that we are more fully dedicated to Christ. And then chapter 3, verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. And then the list of virtues. Kill the sin in your life. Embrace all the virtues of Christ. Walk in the ways of Christ. Be filled with the knowledge of Christ. And you will have all that you need. Chapter 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So Paul says, we're praying for you guys. you got to pray for yourselves too. Pray that God would give you all that you need. Morally, spiritually, intellectually, so that you can stand firm in this day. My friends, there is nothing lacking in Christ. There is only a lack in us. We don't yet know enough of Christ. We're not yet fully convinced of Christ. We've not yet made the moral transformation in our lives that would give us firmness in Christ. The issue is in us, not in him. He doesn't need to be supplemented. We need to be supplemented with more of his teachings. We need to grow in our knowledge of and dedication to Christ, which happens by reading his words, by listening to him through preachers, by meditating on his words. We need greater spiritual watchfulness meaning that we are not indifferent toward the presence of sin in our own lives, but we are keeping guard over our own hearts, lest we be led astray. We need to be killing those remaining sins. As the Puritan John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Either you destroy it or it will lead you astray. We need to grow in Christian virtue. Only possible through vital connection with a local church. Remember, this letter is to a church. Every single instruction here is, is given under the assumption that the believers are working together to help each other in the faith. This cannot be done apart from a local church and the connections you have with it. And then we need to bathe every action in prayer, asking for the spiritual resources necessary to endure in our time. My friends, as I speak to you now, the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris is being rebuilt. It will rise above the city of Paris once again. And if you've become weak in your faith, tempted to think that perhaps the 
the arguments of the cultural Marxists and the critical theorists and the white nationalists and the Antifa terrorists and all the rest of them might have something positive to contribute to your life, your faith can be rebuilt too. Your faith can be made strong again by remembering the preeminence of Christ and the all-sufficiency of His words for life and godliness. And by resolving within yourself to give Him the place that He is due once again. Will you do that with me? Let's pray together. Lord, thank You for the time You've given us. Thank You again for this remarkable book. Lord, the times we are living in today are quite different from from what they were a thousand years ago when Notre Dame Cathedral was built. But Lord, not so different from how the world was 2,000 years ago when the church first began. Lord, we have come full circle in Western civilization. And that just makes the books of our New Testament that much more important for us. So, Lord, help us to learn from the experience of the church of Colossae. Help us to take to heart the Apostle Paul's words to this church. Help us to get a sense of the the glory of Christ. Help us to see that that his words are all sufficient for us. Help us, Lord, not to be tempted to subtract from or add to the pure doctrines of Christ by the systems of thought around us. But we don't need those. They will not make life better. Help us to see through the superficial aura of authority around some of the advocates of anti-Christian thought. Help us, Lord, to be faithful and true in this age. Help us to be winsome in our communication with non-believers. And Lord, might you win many to faith in your Son through the foolishness of preaching. Might you be glorified in our lives and in our church. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.